Rock's Backseas Musical Podcast. First of all, welcome to the 200th episode of Backseas Musical Podcast. You know, you've happened to stumble across a really good episode. One with what I think is one of the finest songwriters alive, Thomas Walsh, formerly of the band Pugwash from Ireland. If you followed along this podcast for the last 199 episodes, and you're probably aware that this is his third appearance on this podcast, only one other person so far has been on the podcast that many times. And that was Cheryl Pavelski from Omnivore Recordings. Now, Cheryl and I have been friends since we went to college together, and I bring her up because in 2014, it was Omnivore that was the first record company to distribute his music here in the States, including the amazing compilation, A Rose in a Garden of Weeds, and then his album, Play This Intimately as If Among Friends. Both of those records spotlight what I've been saying about Thomas for years, and that is this. Thomas Walsh isn't just a gifted songwriter. Thomas Walsh is something far better. And as I've said before, it ain't just me saying this. Thomas Walsh has been praised by some of the greatest songwriters alive, like Ray Davies of the Kinks, Brian Wilson, Jeff Lynn of ELO, Andy Partridge from XTC, who once said, at their best, Pugwash are almost Beatles-like in their greatness. They are just that good. And I swear to you, after purchasing all seven Pugwash albums and both of his collaborations with Neil Hannon with the Duckworth Lewis Method, that quote is not an exaggeration. He is simply one of the most underrated songwriters that I have ever heard, with albums loaded with some of the greatest pop songs that I've ever heard. In 2017, Pugwash released their final album, Silver Lake, which was produced by Jason Faulkner, who has also been on this podcast a number of times as well. It's taken six years, but Thomas Walsh has just released his first official solo album entitled The Rest is History. This is a record that boasts contributions from Joe Elliott from Def Leppard, Dave Gregory from XTC, Neil Hannon, Michael Penn, and several others. I should also point out that portions of the album were recorded at Abbey Road Studios in London. And to be completely honest with you, as great as his earlier albums and songs have been, the new record is arguably the strongest record of his career. And I wish I was bullshitting you, but I'm not. And so it is always a pleasure to welcome back my friend, Thomas Walsh, formerly of Pugwash on Baxi's Musical Podcast. Look at the bloody, bloody head on me. Can you hear me? <laughs> I hear you loud and clear. How are you doing? Good. Let me just set this up. I'm just having me, I'm having me breakfast and it's four o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> I got vaxxed, I got boosted yesterday and the flu vaccine. So I, I had a really good sleep, but I'm feeling a bit slightly discombobulated. <laughs> Matt Berry sending me messages. We're having a discussion about the Beatles at the moment. Are you really? Well, I can understand yeah. why. But we're discussing a hard day's night. He didn't. He wanted to know about I'll cry instead. And when I get home, you, um, you know, fillers as they call them, but I don't. I think they're all great, but I said to him, what's the one thing about Hard Day's Night that's unique as a Beatles album? So can you answer that, Mike? 
well, I, isn't it the first album where every song they wrote? Exactly, Mike. That's it. That's what I thought. Yeah, that, I, I thought that's what it was. Actually, one of my favorite Beatles songs is, is on that one. No one ever plays it. No one ever talks about it. But The Night Before, I think it was like, that's like one of my favorite songs by the Beatles. That song helped. Well, then, that, then I stand corrected. <laughs> you were doing so well, Mike. Uh, and, then, and then I fucked it all up. Oh, well, what are you going to do? No, no. I, I, I thought you were going to say I'm happy just to dance with you because I love that fucking song. <laughs> no. Listen, that period of the, of the Beatles is, is kind of like my, it's like the sweet spot of the Beatles for me. Like, yeah. it's, it's like not right the, not quite the middle and not quite the end. It's like just as things are going, you, you Hard Day's Night, Help, and then, you know, maybe, uh, you know, Beatles for Sale. I kind of like that, that pocket that they Love were it. in. Love Beatles for Sale. Yeah, it's a great record. And it kind of gets uh, forgotten about because the next three albums, three, four albums were so damn great. But Great record. And to me, like you're saying, Beatles for Sale is like, what, what made them so great was that every album had something going on that, you know, Another one didn't. So even with Help, which is a, a classic soundtrack album, really, it's, it still had Yesterday. It had an iconic song for the ages, you know, even amongst all the other great songs anyway, of course, including Help. But Beatles for Sale was, it, it's all about even the cover yeah. and the artwork, isn't it, with that record? It's the thing that makes that one even more appealing than most because it's one of the greatest ever Um uh, visual albums, I think. Do I get the gay fold, the inside going in? Yeah. You know, all the, the famous Robert Freeman pictures, and it's just iconic. It's just magic, you know? You know, it's uh, it's funny. The first time we met, you were doing a show. In a, uh, it was a house show in, in Westport, Massachusetts yeah. at uh, Rachel and Wayne Cabral's house. And they were playing one of the episodes of The Beatles Get Back. Yeah. <laughs> and you walked you walked into the room and just and and told everybody to you be quiet, not to ruin the ending, and it was just like a it, it was it was so cool to see you in in that moment where you know you, you have such you know respect and admiration for what they did that you didn't want to see too much. You wanted to, you know kind of absorb it all on on your own. Yeah, and if you remember, which which you have done perfectly, I had left for that trip on like the I mean it's literally probably. Is it two years ago today? And 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 I'd I'd actually watched the first two episodes before I left. And I literally watched the second episode the day I was flying. But of course they came out on you know three separate days. And of course the last one was the, the rooftop gig. And that was the one I was just couldn't wait for. I was so looking forward to it, but I had to leave on that second day. And when I walked in to um they had a big, massive, big screen, and it was playing the rooftop. <laughs> and I went, knock that off. Knock it off now. Because how are you supposed to concentrate anyway with that on? And yeah, you're waiting to see it for 50 years. You know, in that quality, in that in that full context. And I mean, to me, the greatest moment of, I mean, there's so many great moments, but I just got, I got so excited at 50, whatever, years of age. I thought I could never get that excited again. But when they followed, because it cuts off on the film when they start to go downstairs after right. they get stopped. And of course, from the day one I heard this was coming out, I said, will they have footage of them going down the stairs and just 
going down to the basement to listen and all. Oh my God, they had everything. And they followed them down the stairs and they went down to the basement where they're all buzzing out there, listening to the playback. And oh God, it was just, I couldn't be being more excited. Yes. But should we start officially? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Um, I, uh, I got the record and I got it on time and, uh, Thomas, I you know I I own everything you've you have. I I've uh, you know much of it on vinyl, nearly all of it on CD. I don't know how you do this. I don't know how you continue to just create freaking magic. This this record is as good, if not better, than anything you've done. And I know it's taken Thanks a lot, mate. it's taken an awful lot of effort and a lot of sweat and time to get this record finally out. But I gotta tell yeah. you. Thomas is it's it's amazing. It's just no, thanks, man. awesome. Thank you so much. Well, I mean, that's can we just end now? <laughs> um I, I don't want to ruin it now by talking about it. No, I'm I'm not gonna let you get out that easy. You know, that's very kind of yeah, it did it did take a there was a massive gestation period really and the curation have been marvelous. Um they've taken on something that they didn't have to take on, but in fairness uh, when I initially spoke to them, I said, look, I don't ever speak about money with records because I don't. And I never expect to earn off labels and stuff like that, which I don't. But I says, all I need you to do is can you fulfill the pledge that people very kindly, you know, did to make me make this record, to help me make this record. And, and they said, yeah. And, you know, they didn't quite know the task they were taking on in a way, but they've been brilliant. And it is a little cottage industry and a little, you know, it's a very small setup with fans and friends that run it. And, you know, as well as Brent, uh, the owner and head. But um, so at this stage, about 80 to 85% of people have got their pledges on the on the official uh, release date. Um, some will obviously be delayed, which I believe mainly England because uh, because of Brexit. And because of the, the troubles and the struggles that you had to go through to post stuff to England, even internally in England, it's just a bit of a mess. So we have a guy in England who's helping out with getting stuff out there and all, which is brilliant. You know, that's really essential. And um, So, you know, it's all been, and of course, there was times when I thought it was never going to happen anyway, and I'd recorded it and it was sitting there. You know, I did it. I, I, something came up in my memories a few weeks ago from about a year ago where I just took a picture of the hard drive sitting in the, the press with all the cups and the saucers and the tins yeah. of soup because that's where it was I, I said if anyone wants to know the latest update on the album there it is <laughs> it's in the court because it was you know and then a guy Massey was a massive help getting it mixed and mastered um, Neil Hannon helped out a lot and then it was Paul Rock at World Honey who said you should talk to the guys at Curation. And, you know, I, 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 the, the label thing didn't worry me. I, I I luckily had some good, really good relationships with people that I would have loved to have released the record, yeah. including Lojings in the UK, who I loved. And uh, I, I, I'm not speaking for them, but for me, lockdown and, and other things, life and stuff hit them a bit harder than most. So I actually didn't want to impose myself onto Logics <laughs> as a friend. And they were very kind about it. They said it's still, you know, they could still do it. But I 
just got that feeling, you know. So I, I spoke to Brent and straight away we were talking about the Notorious Board Brothers album and, you know, all the good stuff. So we got on really well and and we have got on really well. I mean, there's obviously been bumps in the road because I'm a fucking artist and I hate even saying that, but at times, you know, I can just go, why the fuck isn't, you know. <laughs> um, it lasts for about 30 seconds, but, you know, when you're talking to people you've only known for about six weeks, yeah. um, they can kind of go, who have I got in the bed with here? What the fuck? <laughs> so so we've had, a, we've had a few moments, but nothing that makes any difference to anything. They love the record, and, and I love what they've done, you know, to help it get out there and, and what they're still doing. So hopefully have some patience is all I'm saying to people as well. When we talked last year on, on the podcast and we, and we, we talked about you recording the record and, and, and some of it recorded at, at Abbey road. We'll talk about that in a little bit, but when you recorded it, you, you said to me that you even then believe this is maybe one of the best things you've ever done. Now that it's, it's out and, and today was the official release day. Now that it's finally out there and and off your plate and off your shoulders there's got to yeah. be this amazing sense of relief maybe fear or hesitation how are you feeling after this is now it's finally out on streaming and and available for people to pick up well i'll tell you what straight off did i actually say those words it's, it's the best thing i've done because it so doesn't sound like me. Well, you said, <laughs> you, what, you, did. what you said was it may be the best thing I've ever done. And I had to listen to it again to make sure that I didn't mess up that quote. But No, that, that sounds more like me. <laughs> it may sounds more ordinary to me. <laughs> yeah, it was I it, it, it probably wasn't as definitive as that, but it but it was saying, you know, I'm yes. what we've come up with is something pretty special. Yeah, and and I mean, you know, I, I'm the man who wrote a song called This Could Be Good, you know. <laughs> You know, I couldn't even say this. You know, like Americans, would, if an American released that song, it would be this is amazing. <laughs> you know, and uh, so uh, to be honest with you, I yeah, but I probably did because, in, in fairness, I really felt, and I still do, that it it is a special record. I'll tell you what's amazing. I didn't believe the songs were up to my standard when I demoed them initially, or when I wrote them. I thought it was just a bit of a same old, same old, you know, with me. And I wanted to do, I, I wanted in my heart to do a few different things. And I suppose something like This Is My Fortress it was me trying to do something different like that in a way. But I, I, I always end up just saying to myself, you know, why try and reinvent the wheel? Because it, and people often say this about bands and about people like me who make this kind of music. Um Oh, it's it's still the you know it's classic pop and it's still the, like as if that's just easy to fucking do. Now I don't even I'm not trying to say it's it's hard to do. It's what I do. Right. But I hate the way that's just thrown away when you know someone like Radiohead could make a record, and to be honest with you, it could sound like the Benz Part Two or OK Computer Part Two, and people would say it's innovative or it's amazing. And I mean, them records, those records were innovative at the time, of course you know, in their own way, but ultimately they're still based in melody and all that kind of stuff. So it's just different genres get treated differently and get looked upon differently. And I hate that kind of just, oh, you know, oh, it, it's just another collection of great songs, you know, as if, as if that's derogatory in a way. Yeah. So well, isn't that but, the, isn't that the point of making an album, a collection of great songs? I mean, isn't ultimately that what it's all about? 
Well, that's the thing I was brought up on, and I seem to think that a lot of people and a lot of people in the in the press say would just it's kind of like ah, you know, this is as if they could sit down and 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 write fucking twelve songs, you know, with some melody in them, you know. It, and again, I'm not trying to get the violins out here. I'm just trying to make the point that I hate the way this genre, a genre, is looked upon sometimes. So when I was kind of behaving like that when I was saying this should be different I should make this different I just sat down one day and went no this is what I do I write songs and I'm proud of writing songs and I'm just going to release an album with songs like I always yeah. fucking do but you know I want to make sure that they're done right and they're done well and then when I demoed them they really came alive and I listened to them a, a lot because you have to listen to them a lot at the demo stage that's when you know your songs or you get to know them and then you don't listen to them a lot ever again it's always the demos that the writer listens to i think and there's, there's a couple of songs i mean on some level there are some songs that sound like pugwash but there are some songs like you say that 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 are different like you said you know this is my fortress is is very different uh another lesson in life uh love in, in a circumstance they're very different from the kinds of songs you've written before but they're all fantastic it's like you know you're right it it it, it if writing a great song were so simple, everybody be doing it, but they simply don't. And yet, when I'm yeah. when I, as I'm playing this for the first time the other day, there was a there was a part of me that that was having like this, and maybe it's because I know you. I don't know. There was part of me that was kind of having like this this physical response to it, like a, like an emotional response. And it was like it, there's just something about this particular record where I was like I was so pleased that I had it and so pleased that, uh, you know, I feel already connected to it simply because you and I have, you know, we've talked a couple of times, we've seen each other yeah. a couple of times. Mm -hmm. I I'm just, I'm, I'm just amazed by it. And, and, and I would think that to be proud of it would be almost an understatement. Well, I'm not great at taking praise as much as I love it, <laughs> but, um, cause it's a lovely thing. And you know, there's so much shit in the world. It's nice to be, it's nice to be nice. Yeah. But, um, I, I had this thing, I spoke to Neil Hallen about this a while back, and it's, again, this is a very Irish thing, I have to say, and it's kind of annoying, but I do feel there's an element of truth to it. I just think the longevity of me, me just sticking around, because all the stuff I've done before I've been very proud of, and you've liked a lot, and, you know, people like yourself have really liked, and, you know, then fans I've got over the years and stuff, and it's almost like it's either a, mo it's either a time limit like 25 years or it's like your 10th album or whatever it might be there's always one point in, in a career where someone has sustained a career even though it's been very low level there's always a point where at some stage people everyone just goes this is the one <laughs> and i just thought regardless of what this record was like it may probably be the one but i have to say i've backed it up because it's strong you know, yeah, it's not just, you know, it's not just a collection of songs I wrote 20 years ago and I, I, I didn't bother writing new ones and I've rehashed them or whatever. And it's definitely all new and all fresh. Uh, it's funny, another lesson in life was written for Silver Lake, but I knew uh, when we didn't pick that one at the time, I knew it was going to be a strong song anyway. So that was the, the, the catalyst to get the new tracks going. I just kind of rejigged that. So. I I, under, I I totally get what you're saying, and I love it because <laughs> that's a real emotion anyway. It's not like people are being false about it. They are loving it, and they are saying really great things about it, but 
I had a strong feeling it might be the case just because I'm still alive. Like, sure. Yeah. It's, it's not like you had the easiest year. I mean, the last time we, we talked, you were in the hospital for crying aloud. So hasn't been an easy Jesus, I'm, I'm, I'm forever in and out of the hospital, but you know, I, I have things going on, but you know, it's like, I'm not saying it's nobody's business. It's people's business who I know and love Yeah, all that stuff. But it, it, what happens is, you know, because we're always 18 in our heads, that never changes. You know, I really don't believe I've aged. My brain has aged a single day since, since it got to the peak of its, of its, of its male mentalness, if you know what I mean. Like, so about 18, 19, 20, men are just starting to be sensible. Maybe, you know, but from that day, it's just, uh, nothing's changed there. The whole body just goes to shit. Oh yeah. But you know, the brain is still there. So I really, so once in my head, I was saying, do you know what? Yeah. The doctor's saying you have this, you have that. We can't do this. You can't do that. You have to live with that. You have to fucking take that off. You have to leave that over there. You might need one of them, blah, blah, blah. 12 pills a day later. You know, that's just to keep you fucking waddling along on this earth. So that will just happen anyway, because let's face it, we're all going there. And that's the way it is. So in our heads, if we stay young and happy and contented, we could just get on with things. Yeah. You know, I'm gonna have to sit down the odd time and I'm walking to an airport because it's 25 minutes to get to the fucking baggage <laughs> hold. But you know, that's just life. That's fine. I can do it. I'll give myself right. time to do that. And then it just life changes. It's like when you get older, things become different and the accept. So, you know, I'm still excited and happy about this release, and I'm still very proud of it. And and stuff, but if you want me to be out there, you know, like Mick Jagger, I'm not gonna be. You know, I'm gonna be sitting in someone's home in a nice comfy chair, playing the songs for three hours, or you know, stuff like that. Or talking on podcasts, and that's enough. You know what? What can you do? You know, there's yeah. people out there that don't even go and play live. You know, so I'm very happy that I can do that, and and I love doing it. You know, considering everything that uh, you've been through in the last year, I, I there was at one point online that you made this uh, this statement. I, I don't know how you feel about it now, but at the time you had almost threatened that this might be your last album. And I, and I know you've written stuff since. Do you still feel that way? It, it is, does this seem like the, the last thing you're going to do or is just, there's just more inside of you? That was very dramatic, wasn't it? A that little bit. Statement. <laughs> you know, to be honest with you, it just, and again, it depends on how you're feeling and what you've gone through. I mean, I may have just come back from, six hours in the hospital and being told something quite disturbing and then had to sit on a on a bus full of people in the you know obviously pissing rain because it's Ireland and the bus is hot and sweaty and everyone's stuck beside each other and you're sitting there and all you want is a cup of tea and get home and then when you get in the heating's not working and the fucking you've run out of milk blah blah and then you pick your phone up and someone says where's this fucking album I've been waiting six months for and you just kind of go, look, hey, this might be me fucking last one, so fuck off. You know, that kind of, you know, let's face it, a lot of famous quotes out there. John Lennon being a great example of, of mood swings, mother of God. You know, he hated everything in 1970. He loved everything in 1980. You know, he would have loved everything, obviously, for the rest of his life because John Lennon was that kind of person. They would have done Live Aid. They would have fucking released albums. They would have worked together again, Lennon McCarthy. It's just obvious. Yeah. It's just that, you know, if you're going to get murdered, or you're going to have serious hospital stuff or serious personal stuff, 
you know, it's going to dictate what you say and what you do. And I think when I said that, I definitely meant it because it's too much fucking hard work. Yeah. Especially when you're going through life stuff as well. And, you know, and money's always an issue with me because I really, all I earn is to get by. And I hate going on about it, but it's like I genuinely do gigs online to try and get some money, you know, so I'll get some fucking shopping in. And that's great if I can do it. And fans are amazing. And I can, I'm only surviving because of the fans. So around the time of an album, there's a little bit more work, which makes you relax a bit more. But typically, you know, the Beatles released their last ever single. So I dropped about 400 fucking quid yesterday on, you know, on Beatles variations because it's the last single by them. And I'm a collector of vinyl. And of course I was going to do it. It would be like fucking, you know, be like Magic Johnson not wanting to throw a fucking, does he play basketball? Well, he used to. Yeah. Be like Magic Johnson getting a basketball on a basketball court live on CBS or something and saying, throw the ball, Magic, and him going, nah, nah, fuck this. <laughs> of course he's going to throw it, you know? I mean, it's like it's just things you do because it's natural to you. And me writing songs and collecting music and loving bands that I love, that'll never change. And let's face it, if we were to take them things away, we might as well just walk straight down the gangplank into the fucking grave. We've got nothing else. You know, we've got people around us who love us and all, but that's just wonderful in its very beautiful, you know, spiritual way. But we need those things. A man must need a shed to keep him sane, yeah. as Colin Moulding once said. You got a lot of help on this record, and you've you've had people help you on on you know previous records, but you've had this long standing relationship with Neil Hannon. You know, between yeah. a couple of records and the, uh, the the Duckworth Lewis method, and there just seems to be a, a, a great deal of mutual respect between the two of you. That yeah. it, it's it's this this constant you know collaboration. Tell me about about that relationship with him, and 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 what makes it so fruitful for both of you. Well, your question's very good. We just have fun. Um, we get on great with each other. We're we're a kind of a we're a, an emotional release for each of us because there's elements of Neil and his ways and his persona that I really like and I love hanging out with. And he's the exact same with me. You know, we can talk show you about football, soccer, mm -hmm. and uh, <laughs> and cricket and all those kind of great things and, you know, silly videos and all the very normal stuff. But he really doesn't have a lot of people around him to do that with. And in fairness, I don't have a lot of people around me that wants to talk about Fraser or or the reason why the Fraser reboot shouldn't happen, which is Neil's opinion. <laughs> and my opinion is, let's just watch it and see. I'm on the fence so far. It's okay. <laughs> but, you know, where's Niles? You know, yeah. Let's be honest. But, you know, I see there's a dog coming into today's episode. So there's a dog coming in. <laughs> you know, it's not Eddie, but it's a lovely looking dog. Yeah. But, um, there's moments so far, but anyway, that's the kind of thing. See, we could just go off on a tangent about normal stuff and, well, so-called normal stuff. And so, and then all of a sudden we go, but what about this A minor thing I did yesterday? And Neil would go, oh, that's really nice. And then I go, yeah, you just played something there. And then all of a sudden, within an hour, we have something. And that's a very lucky thing to have with someone, especially someone as brilliant and as musically as musical a genius as Neil Hannon is, because he is, you yeah. know, and, and he's written many hits and he's, he wrote many more. And, and I mean, I'm, 
I'm going to state here now that, I mean, next year's Academy Awards should and would, should have a Neil Hannon track um, nominated because he's written these amazing songs for Wonka, mm. uh, the musical Timothy Chalamet movie, um, which is coming out in, the, I think it's December. And the songs are marvellous. And, you know, so, he, so he's, you know, going forever upwards because that's natural for him. He doesn't ever go backwards. And I love that with people. And I've done that myself just on a personal level. I've always thought that I've improved as I've gone along. XTC being a huge influence on that because I just thought every record they made was a huge step forward in either recording or songs or whatever it was. It was just a, always a step forward. They never took a step back. And of course, the great bands did that. The Beatles, you know, for me, ELO did. But of course, if you look at it, <laughs> you know, really uh, X-ray eyes, you'd see that balance of power certainly wasn't as good as fucking out of blue. But, you know, when you live through these records as well, when you're alive, when they come out, when you go to the shop and buy them on the day, they all mean something special to you. So, uh, so with Neil, it's that kind of special feeling. It's that fun. And we do get some good results, you know. So hopefully it's not the end of our dalliances together. You mentioned uh, XTC, and you know, in the past, you and I have talked a lot about XTC, and and Dave Gregory helped you again with with this yeah. record, and and Dave has done a lot of things with you over the years, and uh, the disappointing part about it for me is, uh, is I talked to Dave literally three months before the two of you went into Abbey Road to record the string arrangements for this record, and I, yeah. I'm kicking myself like, how did I? I wish I had known that, but uh, you want to talk about guys who you're surrounding yourselves with geniuses. I mean, this guy's pedigree when it comes to music is just, it's, it's so rich and amazing that, you know, I'm, I'm in awe of Dave Gregory every time I've heard him or talk or, you know, even interviewing myself. I just, I just, I love Dave Gregory. Well, I think that should be the name of, I don't know, a book about all his fans, because, you know, I love Dave Gregory is this perfect title because who doesn't love Dave? I mean, it's not that, you know, Dave can't say cunt, or, you know, bollocks, or twat, or fuck off, because when he does, it's like watching George Martin say it, it's hilarious. <laughs> and, you know, he's just a great, normal guy in that respect. I keep saying normal, I hate that, you know. We are normal, Bonzos. <laughs> but um, but I, I mean that in the, in the way that, you know, there's always those, those phrases about don't meet your idols and don't meet all these things. And, of course, they do apply to some people because it's true. You know, you don't want to go away away to meet X because you know they're gonna be the way they are, you know, and then that's just the way it is until you get to know them, say. But in my experience, 99% of the people I've met who I love, and I've been very fortunate to meet, are just such brilliant people. But then again, you get pulled in by their gentleness and their kindness and their friendship, and and then you tend to forget how absolutely amazing they are as musicians as arrangers as just you know and you kind of get lost a bit and it's it's great to get lost in a friendship ahead of an attribute you know yeah really cool but but with dave it's just like dave wasn't doing any more string arrangements because they are so fucking tedious and laborious and boring and for dave you know he just wants to play the guitar and you know dave's just gone over into the 70s zone you know, cross. He looks about fucking forty-five, but you know. So, but the age, as we know, makes no difference. But what I'm saying is, he wanted to start, uh, you know, 
taking it down a, a notch and stuff. So things like string arrangements, just a lot of time, a lot of brain and stuff. And you want to be watching the chase or something or some fucking TV show where you're having a, you know, just relaxing with a cup of tea or playing, you know, cream, good boy, you know, on vinyl where you have a <laughs> cup of tea. And, um, and so I, I just, but I asked him because again, when you said three months beforehand, I, that probably, every old was probably not even taught about three months beforehand the way I work. <laughs> so getting Dave on board to do the string arrangements and getting Abbey Road was probably that kind of time frame anyway. It's probably around three months. You know, because when I get things going and things can happen, I had a really great dear friend in New York who helped me out with that Abbey Road trip as well, which is very important. It's a guy called Steve Lorello, who's a bit of a, a kind of a unspoken star of this record in a way because he helped out so much with that. But when I got Dave on board, I, I just said to him three or four times, I, I hope you're not doing this just out of kindness. <laughs> and he goes, no, I really, I love the track and I'm happy to do it. And when I heard that, it was just like, okay, great. And and, I, and he got Barbara Gaskin to, to notate the thing out onto paper because you have to have it onto official kind of music paper when you go to Abbey Road and have it there on the stands for the, the players when they come in. And Barbara Gaskin is a, I'm a huge fan of Barbara Gaskin. She had hits in the early 80s in the UK with a guy called Dave Stewart, which is not the Eurythmics Dave Stewart. But they covered It's My Party, you know, things like that. And and they were number one hits. And so, and she was always very sexy on top of the pops and stuff, you know, the short skates and the hair and all. So when I was an 11-year-old kid, I was like, oh. then all of a sudden, Barbara is notating out the, you know, and all these great, things it's just when you meet these people they those things happen and they're really wonderful things and i'm very so dave just did an immense job but he yeah. also conducted on the day which was fantastic to see him up on the podium conducting uh we had eight amazing players led by everton nelson who's a very famous player and a huge session player and he's just magic i mean he's just <laughs> the guy was born to sit in abbey road and play the the violin or viola or whatever and, and leads a group of musicians. He's just a genius. And so having him in, I was only 90, we did it in 90 minutes. We did it in less than 90 minutes, to be honest with you. And uh, we got it down, but you know, we, we had a little chat, we had tea and the usual stuff and people left, people could leave early, still get paid their full amount. And then we could go and add on some overdubs and have a look around the studio. And that's all, it, that's what Abbey Road is for me. It's getting the recording done because you know you're working with the best people in the best place in the world. And then you can have a little time because it will it will be done quickly. And then you have a bit of time to walk around and get people in and show them it and give them the, the you know, the trip of a lifetime, I suppose, around that studio. So I love it. And I, I thanks Dave immensely for that. I mean, to, to, to be there, you know, and even with Dave, you know, because you're talking about someone you know, who is that talented and who does appreciate yeah. your your talent immensely. I mean, it, it has to. I mean, I, I don't even know how you even absorb that. You're, you know, you're in Abbey freaking Road Studios. I mean, the the place has a magic of its own, even in silence. I mean, it, it's a, it's just an, an yeah. amazing environment to be in and make music, even if it's just for 90 minutes. Well, it was, well, the thing is, you know, it was initially, I've only ever been there because of the right reasons. So, you know, I often say this about, you know, millionaire businessmen, mainly Americans, you know, Japanese probably as well. And, well, whatever, anyone, 
Well, they go in there, they film it, and they play a Rickenbacker, and they all go, woo, and all. And <laughs> they pay top money, and they walk in and walk out, and it feels great. And it's it's still amazing. You can do stuff like that, I suppose, in this day and age, you know, with things being so uh, so important historically, you know. So it is great to think that you can still go in there. Um, I'm waiting for, you know, Just Stop Oil to go in there under the moniker of a, a hip new indie band and show orange paint all over Abbey Road. And that'll be the time when they officially end their campaigning because they'd be killed. <laughs> but you know what I mean? It, it's like, so the, what I'm saying is there's, you know, it's great that you can still do that, but the respect is there. But I went there musically in 2004 through the section quartet, who were great friends of mine, Eric Corfain. And Eric just did the um, the strings on all the, the Def Leppard string album. Okay. And that's the amazing thing. I, I'm great friends with Eric for years. And Eric didn't even know that I knew Joe Elliott. And Joe didn't know that I knew Eric. And it was all very, <laughs> very much fun. But it's funny, this album, Eric didn't work on on any particular track. But, uh, but Joe was on it. So, um. I, but uh, I, I digress. But it was originally because Grant Lee Phillips um, had a gig in London in 2004 that the Section Quartet were playing at. And he pulled it because of illness, I think it was. Hmm. And they found this out, but they were still going to go to London because they had to do a John Bryan session in Abbey Road. And uh, like a string session for some movie. And they just contacted me at the time and says, look, we know you're looking for... Because I just started with this new label and there was money around. 1969 records, we were all friends. And he just got in touch, Eric, and said, look, it, we can get you Abbey Road Studio 2 pretty cheap if you want to do the strings. And we'll do the strings, you know, we'll come in. So it was a Rose in the Garden of Weeds track and a few other bits and bobs. And, of course, Dave did the arrangements for them anyway. So Dave came down that time, <laughs> almost 20 years ago now. And we had one of the greatest days, and it was for the right reasons. And... Um, it did look like a, an air wind and fire session because I had everybody in the fucking I invited everybody. <laughs> and uh, it's a bit more, it's a bit stricter now, but I still got about 20, 20 people in for last year's session. But uh, they were all roadies. But, you know, so so I'm there for the right reasons, which I love because it is, and it is, A, it's cheaper than doing strings in Ireland. And B, it's really? the greatest place in the world. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, and once you're in, they give you great deals as well. They're wonderful Arabi Road, they really are great public relations as well. And um, it helps when you get off a plane and you go straight to Abbey Road like I did and you bring three or four joint Toblerones for the <laughs> for the girls at the at the reception and the guys at reception. That always helps because, um, you know, there's nothing better than being given a huge Toblerone. No, I agree. Honest. I totally agree. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, so little things like that, though, I'm always thinking of because... These are special days for me, and I don't ever forget where I'm from and the working-class Dublin element of things and the fact that, you know, there's really no musical history in my family. And it was just because I heard things when I was very young and I went, oh, my God, that means something to me, you know. And then all of a sudden, you become what you become. So I still don't know why I'm doing what I'm doing or how I'm doing it because, you know, there's no real... DNA there, but you know, there's DNA from beautiful people and talented people who, you know, worked. Uh, my uncle on my mother's side was an amazing drawer. He, he drew cartoons for an Irish paper and he was a brilliant sculptor and stuff like that. So there is an artistic bent 
But you wouldn't, not not musically though. Well, I'm going to ask you about that because you know I think we've we've touched on that before. You start playing music at a, at a fairly young age, and at some point you realize, oh well, I mean, and with no, like you said, no real DNA in your family that's musical. But at some yeah. point, at some point, you realize, hey, wait a minute, I can do this too. I mean, was there was there a particular moment or a particular song that either you wrote or played to that you said? All right, this is it. This is this is where this is all going. One thing that's always been in my mind, like vivid as anything, is that when I, because I was a drummer, I loved to. So when I was a kid, I used to drum, bang things and stuff. I banged a lot of things, but you know, even without drumming, you know, I was one of those mad. <laughs> I suppose nowadays it'd be ADHD or whatever the hell they call it, and give you a pill. Thank God they didn't give me anything at the time, right. because you know, honestly, it must stunt whatever's going to develop in you, it must, you know, and I'm just, I'm very much against it only in the extreme cases, obviously when you need help as a, as a kid. But for me, I just, I'd go to my auntie's house and grab the eggs out of the fridge when I ran in and, you know, run down the back garden and she'd run after me and say, give me the eggs. And then I just smashed them against the wall when she was one feet away from grabbing them. You know, that kind of thing. I was just one of those. And my auntie used to bring me to the supermarket so I, she'd actually tell me to push over the displays. So I'd run down the aisle and push over all the cans of beans or something. And she just got a great laugh out of it. So, you know, I was one of those kids. So when I started hitting things, I could do it in time, which I noticed. And then I got really into, you know, when I got mad into ELO was in the 70s and Gilbert O'Sullivan and, you know, all those great. And of course, the Beatles came. The Beatles were always there. It's mad. They're like a... They're like a spiritual force. You knew yeah. they were there, but you just didn't bother with them. You had your own little band. You had your ELO, or you had your kinks, or you had, you know, they were just like, oh, they'll take care of themselves. You know, I don't need to listen to them yet and whatever. So <laughs> when the 70s ended and I got really into the Beatles heavily after Lennon was murdered, because I went out and myself, my brother went out and bought an album a week of the Beatles in 81. Mm-hmm. Um, just because when he died, we heard all this music that was incredible you know, on the radio. Right. So we're like, this is all them, this is all him, this is all whatever. So it was that kind of thing. So I, I but I still wanted the drum. So we started to do get back sessions out in the shed, you know, our shed in the side of the house. And I drum and we'd start at eight o'clock in the morning because we read that they used to start at eight o'clock in the morning, all this bullshit, you know. <laughs> and uh, But I love drumming. But then, of course, I got more and more into the songs and into the music. And one day, I remember, as you, you asked about a particular song, I remember just going up to the back bedroom of my parents' house, probably about 1982, I'd say. And just because I'd learned some chords and I had a guitar, my brother's guitar, and I just started strumming it and I wrote a song. And I Don't Let the Grass Grow Under Your Feet was the first line. Mm-hmm. And it was C to G, it was C to G minor. So that, that was a good start. Now, there were two difficult fucking chords if you're a young guitar player, but I remember that grass grow, whatever. But earlier than that, I had done a song into a tape recorder uh, and I'd overdubbed. So I had put drums down and then I play a guitar and sang over it. But it was basically going back by the boards. It was just a remake of that. It wasn't, I just basically took that tune. So when I started to write real songs, I have, I have a cassette somewhere of those songs I wrote in the back room. I definitely had them somewhere. And it's just me on acoustic and 
they're really awful, of course. But <laughs> you know, I'm glad I did them because they were the beginning of of all this. Well, I mean, a lot of people write songs. A lot of people write music. Not everybody writes as much great music as you have. I mean, there are some people that spend their whole lives, if they, if they stumble into one great song, they're lucky. I was putting together a Spotify playlist of, of your music just for the sake of having it. And then, Baxi's, Baxi's Spotify yeah, thingy. Yeah, and after, like, uh, after adding almost three hours of music, I'm thinking, is there anything I forgot? Because there's a, t- a shitload of songs that I haven't even added to it yet. And it's just like... I marvel at it because in, in the same way I, I, I marvel at like Andy Partridge because as his career yeah. went on, his music became more sophisticated and more complex and better in a lot of, in a lot of ways. And when I hear you, it's like nothing slowing down even after 20 years of doing it. I mean, you maybe you, you don't have as many records out, but you hit more than you don't. And that's really something that I would think every songwriter would aspire to to be at that well, level well again it's it's your wonderful opinion so thank you very much i mean when you mentioned andy partridge it's uh you know i kind of that's when i kind of go well hold on a minute just you know shut up <laughs> you know because i don't take i don't take easily to people who are genuinely innovative and just special and you know yeah. and you know andy was doing it from and he's been doing it now for nearly 50 years you know and uh, officially, you know, with Naked Music, 77, 78, you know, first releases. And and he he continues, you know. I mean, it's, it, it, yeah, it is. There's a little, I hate using the word sad because I know what it's like when you're making music and you're making it on your own in a way, you know, and you're, you're going to have to get it all together. And you get to a certain age when you just don't want to do a lot. Yeah. You know, of that heavy lifting in your brain. But, so I can, so I don't like using the word sad, but there's a little sorry element to you know Andy not making a record every couple of years or something because you know it's all there. But I just understand that he's just a bit you know lethargic or just a bit pissed off with all of it, you know, because it does it, it it doesn't give you a lot back, um, as an actual business in a way. Do you know what I mean? And, and that's what it is. It doesn't really give you a lot back, um. The fans give you everything, but you know, does anybody go out and do their job for somebody else? You have to do it yourself, you know. And um, you know, even even a bus driver who's driving people around all day has to be enjoying what they're doing, and uh, or they're just going to drive off the cliff, you know. So it, it's a tough one. But with Andy and myself, as I said, thank you so much for the comparison. It's, it's amazing, but you know. I just get a burst every fucking 18 months, probably, maybe less, where everything comes out. So all the songs on this album were done in two weeks, mm. and there was about 15 or 16. And what happens is, for me, about three or four of them are like different, slightly different, but the same as another song. So there's three or four of them that are just the same song, but I've written them differently. So I end up either putting them together and making one song into a really good song or scrapping them or leaving them aside. So in the end, I just wanted 11 or 12 usual stuff for an album. Uh, and when I got about 13, 
I just said, okay, you know, that's let's just leave it at the a nice amount. They're all good songs. I can see how they'd work track listing wise, and so uh, then you just off again, you know, and you get the fans on board now because that's the way to do it, and they've been brilliant. So yeah, I did a couple of Jeff Lynne covers, which hopefully will come out. That's a record store date, seven inch, I think. Oh, good. Yeah, I did a, an Idle Race cover with Neil, myself and Neil only. And I did it with the band then and all the people involved in the album. He did a great cover of What Would It Take, uh, Jeff's track on Armchair Theatre. Uh, so and they're really strong. You know, I, What Would It Take was going to be on the album instead of To Be That Child Again, right up to the last minute. And I think it was Keith, or someone involved, just said, well, you got to play with your own songs. This fucking song is great. And, you know, that's a cover. And I kind of went. But I was kind of putting it on because it boosted up the poppiness of the of the whole thing. But then when you do sit down and look through it realistically and you have to do it for the right reasons, I was happy to put my own song back in there. And, of course, it becomes one of the most liked songs already. People are saying that's one of their favorite songs. Yeah. To be that child again. And that's the weird thing. You never know. One of the times that I saw you live, I think it was the first time you spent a lot of time talking about Jeff Lynn. Um, yeah. Who's kind of, you know, I mean, I hear, I think here in the States, I think, you know, some people just, you know, hear Mr. Blue Sky and, and, and for whatever reason kind of think it's like, it's a, it's a fluff song. I've never felt that way. I think out of the blue is one of the most brilliant records I've ever heard in my life from front to back. But he's an, another guy that, uh, you know, wrote that whole album in two weeks it, with this amazing yeah. burst of creativity, but his creativity isn't just limited to songwriting, just the, you know, the way he has produced stuff and, uh, you know, the way he has arranged music. And I know you've had a really good friendly relationship with him over, yeah. over the years. Tell me about Jeff Lynn and, and what he's really like. Well, where do you start? I mean, when you have somebody on your wall, when you're like seven, eight years old, I mean, you join fan clubs and you're, and you know, so their, their picture, their head, you know, because it comes in, say, like a, a, a fanzine form or a newspaper. There was no internet and TV appearances were so limited. There was three channels, you know, four channels at most then in the 80s. Uh, and so seeing these people just in, in everyday life is a very special thing for your eyes, you know. So if a picture of Jeff Lynne appeared in the paper, what would you do? You'd cut it out and you'd stick it in a scrapbook or whatever and that's why people did those things well, I mean we so desperately wanted the internet years ago it's just that we never knew it was going to come you know because now I can just I can spend days just going oh I'll google Jeff Lee and see what comes up and just be loads of great pictures and articles and I'm going hey and there I am that's the end of my day and that's another reason why you won't get two albums a year out of me you know <laughs> google but um so so when you meet when you when you get even so somebody like him who was very, very, he was anti-publicity his entire career. Yeah. He hated it. He hated interviews. He hated TV appearances. He wasn't even a fan of live work unless it was the during the peak time of his career when he did lots of it and made all his money and then he could relax and he did it very well and Don Arden was a big help for him with all that stuff. You know, as much as Don Arden is a dirty name with a lot of people, I mean, if there's no... Don Arden, there's probably no Jeff Lane and no ELO, really, you know, yeah. and, and all those kind of things. So, uh, during the time he had to work his bollocks off, he did. 
And he really did. And he gave us so many beautiful things. And I loved him. And I loved the fact that he didn't want to do interviews, even though I would have collapsed if he came on TV and started talking because it would have been, oh, he's alive. <laughs> you know, look at his mouth moving. He certainly hasn't responded to any of my requests to do an interview. <laughs> no. Uh, and I don't mean that in any derogatory way. I know a few people who've been lucky to interview him. And, you know, it's not an easy process either because, you know, uh, but once he knows he's doing two days of interviews, he'd be brilliant. Yeah. But, you know, just in general, it's going to be tough. You know, so many book requests and stuff like that. And it's just, you know, he just couldn't be arsed. And I, I know it's a, it comes from a really lovely place because I could hear him saying, oh, tell them, thank you very much. But, you know, I couldn't be arsed. And <laughs> that's the real answer you get from him. He's very real and he's very honest and he's very funny. And, uh, he loves the way people love because he's a fan. He's still like me. He's a Beatles fan. That'll never stop. And he's a, you know, he's a Roy Orbison fan, all these people. So if you sit down and talk about Jeff, about things like that, he'll just talk about those people for hours. Yeah. Like I did. And so he, that's never, that's never going to wait. Man. But, you know, it is Jeff Lynn, upwards of a hundred million albums in pretty much, you know, through his entire career with all these other artists and, you know, Grammys and whatever. And, Lifetime achievements and Hall of Fame and Ivan Avellos, everything. So he is a very respected and loved person. But I understand, you know, when Homer Simpson said, Is it Jeff Lynn? To Lisa, you know, in The Simpsons about your favorite Wilbury, you know, Homer was trying to be hip. <laughs> you could, you just knew that all the people on The Simpsons loved Jeff Lynn. It just, and it's like, and it, it permeates to all that stuff. When, but it's nice to see his revival in the last few years because. They were a dirty ward um, for a long, long time. And stupidly so, just because Britpop and the 90s and the dance you know, craze and all that kind of stuff, there was a huge, it's like punk with Macca and all that stuff, you know. Yeah. I always say this as well, but, you know, Mulligan Tour is the greatest punk record ever released. <laughs> you know, no, it is. Yeah. Because if you, if you understand the ethics of punk, it's going against the norm. And when he released that, Punk was the norm, and he released a he released a fucking ballad with bagpipes, and that's punk, that's fucking punk. Yeah. And of course, I love the fact that nobody ever says that because it's so one, it's so wrong to say something like that. All the top <laughs> journalists I know would go, "What are you fucking talking about?" You know, and and I, I just look at them and go, "That's why you are not as good as you should be," yeah. because that's a very simple thing to me. He went against the grain releasing that record, and that's punk. Do you not understand that? So yeah. anyway, getting back to Jeff, um, you know, he just did a lot of things back in the day because that's exactly, and that's what I was talking to you about at the start, because ultimately that's what he did the best. Lots of strings, choirs, brilliant melodies, brilliant production, harmonies. That's what he did great. Why that's a dirty word or a bad thing, I don't fucking know. Because people like to think that something that is ramshackle and, there's blood on the cover or there's fucking someone falling over. It's a little more real. Well, it's just bollocks, you know. I know that I'm not taken seriously in Ireland because of the music I do, but there's nobody in Ireland writing lyrics about real-life situations like I am writing. And the, the ones that are selling their millions around the world talking about being depressed or having troubles, I know for a fact that they're not. <laughs> so there's a lot of that thing where people just fall for the falseness of all that. But you won't get a song out of mine apart from the first 
two albums maybe or the Duckwood Lewis stuff that isn't absolutely all real life sentiments and real life. Like we knew on the new album is about a real life person and about somebody who died uh, recently who I was, you know, great friends with and, and great personal friends with. And it's like, you know, it was alcoholism and it was abuse and it was all that kind of stuff. And that's a very, very real song. And people reacting so, so far who listened to it either live, like I did the little tour in America recently, they're crying. It's a, and I'm very proud of that because if, they, if they're getting it like that on that level, well, then that's really, that's all I can ask because it is a real story. It is real lyrics. It's a melody I wrote that has a you know a mournful feel to it because that's the way it is. And people are genuinely reacting in a way when they hear that song. And I can't be anything more than proud. I don't want to make them sad. Yeah. Or it, I'm proud, you know, that's, a lot, that's how that works for oh. me. With Jeff, he did the same for me. He wrote songs that made me cry and do all that. So, you know, we're meeting him and getting to know him, special, you know. Yeah. Yeah, but when music does that to you, when it puts you in that, in that place where suddenly you just become open and vulnerable to it, that's a special thing. And, it, and it's a special talent to be able to write music that moves people to that to that level so like i said before you know when i listened to the 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 new record there was part of that that was doing that for me when i saw you play this last time in connecticut there was part of a part of you that was doing it to me again and it's kind of been that way since i discovered your music uh you know many uh, many years ago and it's just been it's just been a delight to to watch you create and 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 get to know you a little bit too that's i'm 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 really pleased by that well thanks mike it means a lot and yeah it's great to get to know you because you're very good at what you do but you're also very knowledgeable and you know your stuff but i apologize it's been six years in silver lake but i think a lot you know we tend to forget don't we what was that thing oh worldwide pandemic lockdown <laughs> and we tend to forget there was two and a half to three years yeah where we really couldn't do anything yeah realistically and especially you know when they say people in the more vulnerable categories well fuck me you know there was a whole category just for me so you know i didn't want to be getting out there you know going way we they've just said we can go out today from not going out yesterday i'm not an idiot i know that you know life was going to come and bite me on the arse very quickly. So I had to even let it go even longer than most people, you know. And, of course, it's still out there. And I've been knocked sideways this year twice. Knocked shit sideways by it. And so I was glad to get the booster yesterday, and I was glad to get my flu vaccine. Um, And I, 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 I urge people to get it if they haven't. Yeah. Um, Because ultimately these things are ridding the world of this horrible thing. But we had so much... You know, even I always think of Adam Schlesinger. Uh, I met up with Chris Collingwood recently, and uh, that was a great moment because, you know, we, we all raised the glass straight away to Adam mm-hmm. because, you know, he went very early on. You know, he got it really quickly and uh, COVID. And so so all this kind of, and of course, it has an effect on you anyway as a, as a person on your head. You know, so I didn't want to be sitting around writing songs about lockdown. I mean, that's not a very enjoyable thing to be doing and you know i'm not a blues artist so i wasn't going to do a blues album about lockdown you know i can't go out no, 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 no. i can't get my hair cut no, no, no. you know it wasn't really going to work for me yeah. but in the end i did do 
a bunch of songs just after the first big lockdown was lifted. So that maybe came on the back of of that good feeling, but a lot of the songs ended up being quite dark, as they always are anyway. And some of them did reflect lockdown, which This Is My Fortress is a good example. Well, Thomas, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah. I, I can't tell you how much I like the album. Again, I don't want to keep embarrassing you by it. and want to be uh, you know, showering, you Thank with, you so much. showering you with praise. But uh, I wish you luck with this. I hope uh, I hope people discover what Thomas Walsh is all about. Well, you people like yourself help immensely. And, you know, I don't just do these because, oh, yeah, I'll do this podcast. Forever. I want to do good podcasts and, and people who know their stuff and and uh, I don't torn down a lot of stuff, but you know, sometimes you get people and you go, well, Jesus, I'd rather, <laughs> I'd rather sit here and talk to the wall. So I'm very happy to do your show. Uh, I love your show. And I won't tell you that I actually got rid of Spotify again. <laughs> I shouldn't say that, but I did. I just can't, I can't stand it. I don't use it. That's the thing because I love, Apple, I love Apple music. So I'm always on Apple music. The quality is brilliant. And I love the setup. They don't have as much as Spotify. Spotify has everything, of course. But then I just go to YouTube now because I've decided to buy uh, to join YouTube, whatever you call it, premium. Right. Because uh, it offers so much for me. I'm always on there as well. So I have to kind of cut down on all the things I have because, you know, 12, <laughs> 13 quid a month, 10 times over. Yeah. Places you don't even go to, you know, it's, it adds up. So I have to. So so I will I will absolutely promote all of Baxi's podcasts, of course. Wonderful. But uh I won't be able to listen to them this time. <laughs> it's available other places than just Spotify. It is available on yes. Apple. So you can get that it is. too. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. So I'll happily listen to it there, yes. Great. Of course. But uh, no, just to get back to that, you're a real friend and a really big supporter of the music. So that means a lot. And of course you're in America, which is which is my home really for the for the people who accept me yeah um anywhere in the world who accepts me is is my home in a way you know because it's beautiful to get a letter from from singapore or from new zealand which i do you know and, and people buying the pleasure for the album all over the world i love them all but you know america is the place i travel to to play to earn my living you know so i'm very i very much love the place for lots of reasons and it's always great to come and see you and see yeah. people like that, and especially when they're playing the house, sitting in a nice chair with a cup of tea. <laughs> it's great, you know. It is enjoyable, isn't it? it? You know what? I love both of those uh, of those shows. The one at uh, at yeah. uh, Wayne and Rachel's house that was uh, you know, great for whatever reason. We got front row seats. That was awesome. But yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, it's 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 always great to see. And when you, you cut... band at all? Did you see Pugwash at all? Did you see us <laughs> play live? No, Did you see us play I, I didn't. And, and the ironic, you you played in Northampton uh, this, yeah. uh, years ago, and I was aware of Pugwash, but I hadn't really listened to it at that point. And okay. and then you know once you you had come and gone, that's when I started to really get into it. And I'm like, oh my god, I I could, I could kick myself for not seeing this. But the small acoustic sets have been really uh, like a charming way to see you and, yeah. and to see your music come alive it's it's it's, it's a great way to do it yeah and, and just to say because we've played it many times and i think our first ever maybe our first ever american show was in portland maine so we want to send out i want to send out a lot of love to a lot of friends yeah. in portland because of what's going on in the last few days and um and, and you know just remain strong you know it'll happen the guns will go it has to happen. Yeah. You know, we all pray this side of the world that you sort out your gun laws. It would be great. But we're not going to get involved in it. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm 
it's like me talking about female issues. I have no right, <laughs> and I'm not saying it, but I'm just sending out love uh, to all the people in Portland, Maine, because um, we love the place and we've got a lot of friends yeah. there. So, but anyway, look, let's just hope it, it it resolves itself without any more yeah injury or death. You know, it's been very sad. But anyway, just love to them people and love to you and the podcast and keep it going, mate, because it's 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 much loved. Thank you, Thomas. We'll talk soon. Talk soon, man. The name of the new Thomas Walsh album is called The Rest is History. It's on Curation Records. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, like it, share it, tell all your friends about it. Be sure to check out all the updates on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And you can also email me at BaxAtRock102.com. I'd love to know what you think. And thanks again for listening to Baxi's Musical Podcast.